Let's just come and pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we think of a day like today and as we think of things like remembrance, things like thanksgiving, about seeking to express our gratitude, Lord, we recognize as we think of this that this is something that isn't just part of a day like today, but that it's woven right into the very fabric of living the Christian life. That you call us to be a people who remember, who are thankful and grateful. And Lord, as we bring our offering to you today, it's with that in our hearts and that in our minds that we remember are grateful and thankful because of what you've done for us, because of all you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you now our thanks. We express our gratitude in remembrance of him. Amen. Well, it's great to have you here today, but um, for those who haven't been, we've been working our way in recent times through the book of Judges. We're going to continue that just now. And I'm going to read from Judges chapter 8, beginning at verse 33. So that's Judges chapter 8 from verse 33, and I'm going to read through to chapter 9, verse 6. And we read that no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the sentences of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Barith. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Oprah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Joah, the younger son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem, to crown Abimelech king. Thank God, and pray that he'll teach us his truth from his word. Let's just pray now together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it's your desire to speak to us through your word, and that as we have open hearts, or we are, as we are ready and eager to hear, and ready to be obedient, we know that you will speak to us today. Lord, may we hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, it's been said, and I'm sure that most of us, probably all of us, would accept it to be the case that our principles, that which we hold to be important, to be central in our life, are affected more than often we perhaps like to admit by what from an early age we see and we hear going on around us as is demonstrated for me by the story of the little boy who was watching a a Western film on television. Now, his mother had strong convictions about drink and swearing, which she'd made well known to him. Anyway, she came into the room just as the hero was on his way into the saloon. And straight away, the wee boy piped up, Don't worry, Mum, he's not going in to swear or to drink. He's just going to kill a man. <laughs> it makes you think, doesn't it, about the, the kind of messages that we sometimes send out about what's really actually important in life. Well, this morning, I want to look at this from a slightly different angle. That is, I want to look at how the patterns that we, we see in life, here in Abimelech's life, are so often an illustrations of the key principles of our lives, of what's actually first in our hearts. I want to demonstrate this to you by looking here in particular at the life and the experience of Abimelech. So let's begin then by looking at the pattern. The pattern, and as is often the case, the beginnings of the pattern of Abimelech's life are found in the tragic last days of his father Gideon. For many of you will remember, we've looked at this, that in his last days, Gideon, despite his great affirmation of Judges 8.23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, the Lord will rule over you, that despite this, by a process of compromise, he slid into a situation where he was actually living a royal lifestyle. And to all intents and purposes, he was king of the Lord's people. But what this this meant, you see, was that when he died, there was a power vacuum. Spiritually, there was a power vacuum. Because Gideon had failed to instill in the people a real love for God and a desire for his glory above all other things. And this power vacuum was filled by the people returning again to the depraved, sordid worship of the pagan god Baal with the added sickening dimension to this being that they gave him the name Baal Bereth, which means Baal Bereth, Baal of the covenant, which is one of the very names of the true and living God, the God of the true covenant we find in the Old and New Testament. But in the physical sense too as well, Gideon's death also left a power vacuum. And it left a power vacuum that his son Abimelech was determined to fulfill. Indeed, that he did fill by means of an act of almost unbelievable brutality. But you know, a man like Abimelech doesn't just appear. No, he was in part also his father's legacy. Though, of course, no man can be held fully to blame for the actions of another, be it a son, daughter, whatever. Each of us in the end is actually responsible for what we do. 
But as our parents are probably the greatest influence in our lives, as they prepare the ground for what we decide to do, well, what damage then Gideon unquestionably did to this young life in particular entrusted to him? To begin with, he gave him the name Abimelech, which actually means my father is king. Now, you see, in itself, this was a total contradiction of Gideon's earlier statement that the Lord is king. And so it was an act of outright hypocrisy. Further complications come in, though, in that Abimelech's mother was not, in fact, a wife of Gideon, but rather we're told that she was a concubine. She was a, a member of his harem. And what this meant was that though Abimelech had his father's genes, yet he did not share his father's name. And legally, according to the law of the people then, he had no right to his father's estate. He was seen as belonging to his mother's family. Now, you can imagine, I'm sure, that that could cause a fair bit of frustration to an ambitious young man. To have a father acting as king, then to be given the name, my father is king, and then to be told, but you're not going to have any part of this. Now, of course, we would imagine that with the right kind of guidance, spiritual, moral guidance, this could maybe have been overcome, but we, we don't know. But what kind of moral guidance did Abimelech get from a man who was acting as king, a man who was living a lie? What kind of guidance did he get morally from a hypocrite? And what kind of spiritual guidance did he get from a father who by the end of his life had so backslid that he was leading his people to worship an ephod, fundamentally an idol? Now, there was nothing much to stop Abimelech going astray. And when at his father's death he saw his opportunity and went astray, well, he certainly knew what to do and where to go. That is, back to Shechem. Shechem, the home of his mother's family. Shechem, the center of his potential support. And you see, this city, Shechem, was actually at this time really a picture in miniature of the spiritual state of the nation of Israel as a whole. Because it was near this city, in a wonderful, in a glorious way, that Joshua had led Israel to commit themselves to God's covenant as they recited the blessings and curses associated with God's covenant from Mount Ebal and Gerasim. But then, since that time, Shechem, like the, the rest of the nation, had refused to fully obey God. They'd refused to drive out the Canaanites, the pagan peoples around them. And so they'd become a mixed city. They'd become a city where Canaanite and Israelite lived side by side. They'd become a city where the worship of Baal stood side by side with and more and more actually took the place of worship of God Almighty. So it was to this city that Abimelech went and said, who would you rather have rule over you? Seventy of Gideon's sons or me? One of your own. Now, is it really a surprise? I don't think it is that given the, the state that they were in, the choice that they went on to make. 
And the final indicator of just how low they'd actually sunk is that they used the silver of Baal. That they used the offering from that detestable worship to actually hire the assassins who carry out this terrible act, killing all but one of Gideon's son. And you know, the, the frightening thing, I think, is that initially, at least, at this point, there is not one voice in all of Israel raised in protest against Abimelech and what he does. That's Gideon's final legacy then. A son, cruel and corrupt enough to plan and execute a deed such as this, and a nation so immoral that they're willing to tolerate it. What a terrible, what an awful pattern of life. But what's the principle that this pattern is an illustration of? Well, quite simply, I would say, of the fact that where there is a power vacuum in life, then that vacuum will soon be filled. And what's of vital importance for for the Christian is that this is as true of our spiritual life as it is of any other dimension in life. Because, you see, Christians often, I think, get confused about about just what they can expect, just what the the nature is of the spiritual life once we, we come to Jesus and put our trust in his death on our behalf. You see, some seem to think that, well, once you've come to Jesus, you know, well, that's it over. You've done your work, you know, you're saved, you're God's forever. And and now you you can just, you know, go on from there and just expect to happily drift your way to, to that time when we die and go to be with God. Well, I would say certainly, once you're truly saved, you are saved. That's true. And you are on your way to heaven. But, you know, going on then to live your life in this kind of aimless way, living like this, the only kind of drifting that you're going to do is going to be away from Jesus and it's going to lead to an unhappy life. Others think, well, no, that you can't just drift your way to heaven. But what you can do is that that you can reach such a state by practicing spiritual disciplines in your life, you can reach such a state of holiness and godliness in this life that sin no longer has any attraction for you and no longer has any power over you. Now this teaching in its popular form has in the main been attributed to John Wesley who was the father of Methodism and it actually goes under the name of of sinless perfection that we can reach a state of sinless perfection. And I have to say this teaching, in my view, has got no actual real biblical basis, and it was maybe most famously dealt with in a practical sense by by Spurgeon, that great Victorian preacher. For there is a famous story of of a time when he was a speaker at a conference, big gathering of Christians, and along with another man, who publicly proclaimed that that Christians could reach this state of spiritual perfection. He preached it from the platform. That a Christian could reach the point where they no longer struggled with sin, they no longer had any desire to sin, because they were perfected in the love of God. They'd grown to love God, and God had filled their life in such a way. And this speaker then went on to modestly suggest that he'd actually realized this in his own life. Spurgeon said nothing on the day 
But the next morning at breakfast time, he crept up behind this man. And he was a big boy, Spurgeon. Imagine him on his tiptoes or something. But he crept up behind him and poured a jug of milk over his head. Bang went the sinless perfection. <laughs> the, the biblical view of the Christian life, however, is to see our, our, our spiritual life, once we come to Christ, much more in terms of a power struggle. It's a power struggle. For example, Paul says in Galatians 5, 5, 16 to 18, he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now you see, I believe what this tells us is that when we become Christians, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then we receive a new spiritual nature. That God the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and our basic nature is changed. That we are, we become new people, a new creation in Christ. But we still have within us the remnants of our old nature. We still have a sinful drive within us that opposes God. We've got something that commonly in the Bible still calls the flesh. Now you see, it's through this old nature that the powers of evil continue to try to work in our lives. And although the dominating power and authority that the devil and the powers of evil have over us was broken by Jesus on the cross. That was broken, that, that rule and authority. Yet Satan still does have a very real power. We see it all around in our world. And he will try to deceive us into believing that he has authority. And so you see, suddenly we find ourselves in the middle of a power struggle. And so before we were Christians, there were maybe things that we would do without a second thought. But now, as we begin to do them, we find that the Holy Spirit, working through our consciences, convict us. And we're unhappy when we do these things. Or the Holy Spirit maybe moves us in some way, the other side, to do the will of God. But then, Satan comes in. And working through our, our old nature, he whispers in our ears, no, don't do that. Don't go that far. It'll cost you too much. You don't need to be a fanatic to be a Christian. And on and on that goes. The Christian life is a countless, relentless inner battle. And so that's why I'm not surprised when people sometimes tell me that their life has become harder since they put their trust in Christ and became a Christian. Because... Ideally even, it seems to me that that's the way the Christian life will be. That it will be a life that's full of joy and full of blessing, but also constantly with challenge and conflict there to be experienced. The problem though comes in, in that for many Christians, the Christian life is about challenge, it is about conflict, but it's not about joy. It's not a joy, but rather for them, it's a constant, repeated, debilitated experience of failure. 
So what's gone wrong? Where's the problem when this is the way we live our Christian life? The problem, as I understand it, is that we fail to really understand this nature of the Christian life. We fail to grasp the fact that it is a conflict. And we then fail to choose to truly live with Jesus Christ as Lord. That is, what we mean by that is we, we fail to realise that we have to actively submit our lives to him. In every area, every part of our lives, we fail to realise this. And this, of course, if we're not living actively with Jesus as Lord, does result in a power vacuum in our lives. And it's into this that the forces of evil, the devil again steps in, trying again, as we've said, to deceive us into believing that he's got authority in our lives and certainly wreaking havoc, making our lives a misery. Now, you see, the answer to this is what it says in Galatians 5.16, what I read earlier. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the sinful nature. And what does living by the Spirit mean? What does it mean? Except living in constant dependence, constant submission, obedience to the Lord. For the main ministry of the Spirit is to exalt Jesus as Lord. So it means living with him actively as Lord. But you know, even in this, even when we, we get this right, we often, I think, still make a fundamental mistake. And I know this because this is a mistake that I've made so often in my life. And it was beautifully brought to my attention by a story I read once about the famous Dutch Christian Corrie ten Boom. It's a story that David Watson told at a time when she'd come to spend a week, you know, sharing in the, the Church of England that he was then the pastor of. Anyway, at the end of this week, after they'd had a, a week with her, three very proper clergymen at that time of the Church of England, all dressed in their dark suits and clerical collars, looking very official, they took her to the train to say goodbye. And just as the train began to pull out, she leaned out the window, this elderly lady, and shouted a last message to them. And she shouted it loudly so that everyone on that platform could hear. Don't wrestle, just nestle. David Watson said that they all went very pink. But he also said that this was a message that he never forgot. Don't wrestle, just nestle. But you see, Often we think that all the answers to our problems in the spiritual life, other areas of life, lie in us. That it's down to us. That we've got to do better. We've certainly got to try harder if we're going to win that battle with sin and live a Christian life that pleases God. Well, you know, maybe partly that's right. Maybe there are things that we do have to do in our life. But I believe Far more importantly, and before any of these things, what we first got to do is draw closer to Jesus. We've got to nestle. For the facts are that if we try to sort out our life in our own strength, we're never going to do it. We'll never do it. And it's true, isn't it? Many of us know it. We can struggle and strive for years but we never seem to get a bit further forward. But 
if we first draw close to Jesus. If we first of all give him in every way his rightful place as Lord of our lives, if we put him first, then I tell you, then we'll find ourselves achieving things that at one time we thought impossible. We'll find ourselves being set free from things that we, would, that we once thought we would never be free from. We'll find ourselves individually and we'll find ourselves living as a church in a way that we thought impossible. A man, Jack Deere, in a book that he wrote, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, and I'm not 100% with this book, but it's got some positives in it. He talks in the same kind of vein. And he talks of how as Christians we can lose our spiritual passion and how that can then be restored. And he talks about things like setting aside a regular time for meditation and prayer. He says that we must take time to get to know Jesus. He says that the more we sit at his feet as our Lord and as we listen to him, then the more we'll love him and be able to live for him. But then he says, these are things that we all know. We've been taught them from the time of our conversion. The problem is not that we don't know them. The problem is that we don't do them. People tend to live under an illusion that they will always have time to pray and to meditate on the Word. That is one of the devil's most successful lies. We must schedule time with the Lord. And then he goes on and talks of the fact that we need to deal with our sin. Of how undealt with sin can kill spiritual passion. But then he makes the comment, another comment, that I believe is vitally important. That again, he says, this is a truth that we've been taught from our conversion. Yet I meet many Christians who are weighed down by the guilt of sin and seem to spend more time living under condemnation than in the freedom of Christ. Many people tell me that they confess their sins and don't feel forgiven. But it's not enough simply to say some words about our sin. We must then trust in the blood of Jesus to forgive us. Hear this. We will never be holy enough or disciplined enough to get into God's presence and be forgiven apart from the blood of his son. The only thing, the only thing the Father has given us to take away sin and guilt is the blood of his son. You see, it's not about how we feel. It's about who we have faith in. And it's about trusting him. And the bottom line is, isn't it all about drawing closer to Jesus? Isn't it all about really living with Jesus as Lord? That's the spiritual principle that I believe the pattern of Abimelech's life here underlines for each of us. That we need to live with Jesus as Lord. Not just proclaim it, we need to live it. We need to seek every day, day by day, to draw ever closer to him. And if we don't, then we caught disaster, spiritual disaster, every kind of disaster. Because if we don't live with Jesus Christ as Lord, then another power 
will seek to control our lives. Another power will seek subtly and sometimes not so subtly to control us, to turn us from Jesus and to fashion and form and direct our lives. I say, may that not be true of any of God's people here. May Jesus Christ be Lord for us. Not only though in word, but also in deed and in power. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your faithful love, for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and for the fact that you want us all to live, knowing you and knowing the freedom and joy that living with Jesus as Lord brings. Lord, help us to submit our lives again to you today, that in Christ we might find that life that alone truly is life. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.